0: Glad you guys had enough energy and stamina to make it this morning out to church. Appreciate you joining us here to start out the New Year's, and let's pray and get going. Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. Thankful for the people you brought out. Help us just to learn, to grow, and just, Lord, to start the year off with you to be the people you've called us to be. In your name, amen. Getting back into our study in Matthew, we've kind of done something different the last few weeks with Christmas program and Christmas, etc., <sighs> So, last week we stopped and did a study on Joseph, and we talked about faith and obedience. And Joseph is kind of one of the overlooked guys in the Christmas story, but what an example he is of faith and obedience. Now, the previous couple weeks, we did do some passages here in Matthew, but talked about how it related to Christmas. And just to remind us of where we're at, verse 17, please, of Matthew 26. It says, Now, on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, The disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now, Passover. We talked a few weeks ago about how Jesus is the Passover lamb. How unleavened bread represents getting sin out of our life. And then a couple weeks ago, we talked about this walk of obedience and faith in verse 18 of go prepare the Passover meal. And God working behind the scenes there. Now, please remember at this time, you're down to the final day, the final hours of Jesus' life. He's getting ready to eat the Passover meal, which we'll have then as the last supper. After that, he'll go to the garden. He'll then be arrested. He'll kind of have a mock trial early in the morning, and then he'll be on the cross. So we are in the final hours of Christ's life. Please remember that as we're going through this. So during this Passover meal, what happens? Verse 20. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, You have said it. Now all the gospel accounts talk about the Last Supper. All the gospel accounts talk about this. Matthew's is the most straightforward And that's where we're going to start here this morning. Matthew just gives us the straightforward facts of what's going on. What is the Passover meal? The Passover meal, to put yourself in this position of a couple thousand years ago, they still do Passover meals today. They call it the Seder meal. We actually do some out here at church, and maybe this spring we'll do another one. It's a wonderful, beautiful picture of who Jesus is. If you've never been involved in a Passover Seder meal, I encourage you to try one one time just to see the symbolism of Christ the Messiah. But these guys would have prepared this meal, and this would have taken hours to go through all the elements of this meal. And they'd all be sitting around this very low table, and sitting's probably not the right word. They would be kneeling, or possibly reclining, around this small table. And during this time, there's all these different elements of the meal that you would eat, and there's this one dish of bitter herbs, kind of a horseradish, just tastes absolutely awful. And it's supposed to be a picture to remind them of the slavery they went through in Egypt. So when Jesus says in verse 23, He who dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. At this point of the Passover meal, you would take a piece of unleavened bread and you would dip it in that horseradish to eat it. Now the one account in John says that Jesus handed it to Judas. This one sounds like they're doing it at the same time. Details like that really don't matter. The point is there's this dish, they're on this table. He sticks the unleavened bread in with Judas and it's Judas is the one that will betray him. And that is a fulfilled prophecy. Psalm 41 makes it clear. Psalm 41, it says that my friend, my friend that I sat down and had a meal with is the one that would betray me. Here, Jesus is eating this meal. And what a symbolic picture that is because 2,000 years ago, when you ate with somebody, it showed a oneness with them. So when Christ ate with the uh, tax collectors and the prostitutes, etc., the world looked at him and judged him and said, how could you? Jesus said, these are the people I've come for. So by him eating this meal with Judas, it shows that there is still a love. He still calls him friend. And Judas still betrays him. So that's the straightforward account in the book of Matthew. Let's look at the other accounts now and build on this. Can you go with me to Luke? Luke 22. Each account says the same thing, but adds a few more details here and there. Luke 22 Look at verse twenty-one, Luke twenty-two, twenty-one. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed! Then they began to question among themselves, which of them it was who would do this thing. Luke here gives us a human insight to what these guys were going through. Matthew is just the facts. Luke is they start wondering, is it me? I remember years ago, somebody came up to me at church and said, hey, I saw you at Walmart the other day, and then they paused. And my mind wondered, what did I do at Walmart? What was I doing? I hope it was something biblical and not unbiblical. (laughs) Because human nature is when somebody comes up and says, hey, listen. Can you imagine me coming up this morning and say, I just want to let you know there's somebody here that we really need to call out. We need to call their sin out, and we need to do it publicly. All of you would start to squirm. (laughs) Is it me? Is it me? That's exactly what's going on. Jesus says, listen, one of you, one of you is going to betray me. So they all start wondering, "Is, is it me? That's the one side of human nature. Oh, I'm just an awful person. I'm an awful father. I'm an awful pastor. I'm an awful husband. It has to be me. He has to be talking about me. Look at verse 24. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Boy, is that not the flip side of human nature? One moment I am the worst person in the world in my mind. The next moment is, you know, I'm really not that bad. I'm actually a pretty good example. This is what we go back and forth with. Read these passages together now just to get the full context of this. Start in verse 22. Truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Oh man, don't you do that? One moment you're kicking yourself and and you know, how awful am I? I don't know why anybody would want to talk to me. I don't know why my spouse stays with me. I'm awful. And then two seconds later, you know what? I don't know why I stay with my spouse because I'm so good. I could probably go find somebody better. We jump back and forth. And so what happens here is you see this human nature going on at the Passover meal. What should they have been doing? Well, in Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's what they should have been doing. See, Luke's account is such a human nature account. We make it all about us. All about us. When really at this moment, hours away from Christ's death, the disciples should have been focusing on Jesus. See, in John's account, in John 13, this is also where Jesus starts to wash feet. To basically say, guys, get your focus where it's supposed to be. Because the only thing you're doing is thinking about you. So that's the first point we need to make this morning. Is that how your mind works? Is that everything goes through thinking about you? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they all start thinking about themselves rather than, well, wait, wait a second. Christ, you're going to the cross. You're going to die. Let's talk about this. But no, it's about us. What else do we have here? Go to John's account, please. John 13. Let's read John's account. John 13. Let's go ahead and start in verse uh, 21. Matthew's account, just the facts. Luke's account sees this sin of human nature. John's account, John 13, verse 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Stop there real quick. We know from putting together the gospel accounts, verse 23, this is John. John is leaning on Jesus. Now, we mentioned this earlier in the message. This is how they used to eat back then at this meal. So a a table that you'd be maybe on your knees at, you could kind of kneel, you could kind of sit, recline. I just want to encourage you guys, the next time you go out to eat with another guy friend, Snuggle right up beside him, put your head right on his chest, and just say, feed me a nugget. You know what I mean? This is, that's biblical. That's what they did back then. There's this oneness. There's this closeness. Now, verse 24, Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Imagine this. You know, John is kind of leaning against Jesus. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Peter doesn't want to say anything, so he's like, ask him. Just ask him. Verse 25, then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, maybe some of you good old King Jamesers out there may say, sop, dish. That's the same type of thing. Once again, it's this bitter herbs, this horseradish mixture that's supposed to remind them of slavery in Egypt. Now, this is so straightforward. Verse 26. I'm going to take this piece of unleavened bread. I'm going to dip it in this. And I'm going to hand it to the person That will betray me. Verse 27. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, look at how the guys respond. Verse 28. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately and it was night. Now, we have to stop right here. This is where our message starts to take a little bit different direction. Jesus so clearly says, He who I take this piece of unleavened bread in, put it in the dish, give it to this this person that's going to betray me. He gives it right to Judas and says, What you do, go do quickly. You would think that all the other apostles at this time would stop and get it. But here's the thing. They can't imagine Judas to be the one to betray them. They can't. Now, if you've ever watched a movie of the life of Christ, they sometimes present Judas in a very interesting light. When Judas comes on, he always has beady little eyes. The music changes in the background when Judas speaks. Because, you know, the drama, that's Judas. The biblical account of this, Judas was so looked up to, so respected, that no one could even imagine that Judas would be the guy to do this. He was the treasurer. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He was the treasurer. He was the one that the people said, hey, who do we trust with the money? Obviously Judas. He was the one that when Jesus says, who I give this piece of bread to is the one going to betray me. And they all say, oh, it can't be Judas. Obviously there's some type of a task or there's some chore that Jesus wants Judas to do. So he's saying, go do it quickly, Judas. Come right back. Is that not fascinating? That this man, that 2,000 years later, we have just almost demonized, and the Bible says Satan did enter him, at the time, no one could even imagine that Judas could be the guy to betray him. Why? Because Judas looked good, he sounded good, he did good, and he was also near Jesus. Remember this table, you got a total of 13 men around this table. And so you're trying to pass these dishes there, etc. So for Jesus to be near enough, near enough to dip the bread, give it to Judas, they had to be sitting pretty close together. I know in our house, we tried to have 10 people around the table. It's a comedy of errors to pass the syrup. You just can't do it. So for Jesus to say, here, I'm giving this to Judas, Judas had to be right there. Right there. Place of honor. Sitting beside the host. But he looked good. He sounded good. He did good. How did he look good? Well, look looked good. He was the treasurer. No one would question that. He sounded good. Remember just a chapter or so ago when Mary came and broke the flask of oil? Judas sounded good. Hey, we should have sold this, gave this to the poor. Sounded good. He also did good. As far as we can tell, there's no reason not to doubt that he went on these missionary trips too and did miracles as well. Plus, he's sitting near Jesus. Looked good, sounded good, did good, near Jesus. But guess what? He sure didn't know Christ. Go with me to Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7, please. Matthew 7 is a very straightforward passage about what it means to truly know who Jesus is. Matthew 7, verse 21 not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These are people that looked good, sounded good, did good, near Jesus, and they weren't saved, just like Judas. Now, it's interesting in verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Now, you've heard me teach on this before. In the Greek language, there's three words for know. Now, we don't have that in English language, we use it all the time. I know my wife. I know that the moon revolves around the earth. And I know Jesus. They all three mean different things. Take the first one, for example, the first Greek word there I know my wife. In the Greek language, it's a word that means to thoroughly know inside and out. You know that person. I've lived with her for 20 plus years. I know her. The next one is, I know that the moon revolves around the earth. That means to perceive, to know. That's a fact. See, we would just say, I know, again. It's a different Greek word. This third Greek word, where it says, I never knew you, that word literally means never come to the knowledge of salvation. I never knew you to the point of knowing you and being saved. Yeah, I know who Jesus is. I perceive the fact. I know him personally. I've been around him. Think about this from Judas' perspective. He hung around Jesus for three years, but he never knew him. Never knew him. Now, guys, this is where we got to start getting a little serious here. Do you realize how many people fill churches on Sunday mornings in America that they don't know Jesus? I mean, they know him, but they don't know him. And what are we talking about here? We're talking about Judas' Looked good, sounded good, did good, near Christ, but yet possessed by Satan. Think of how many stories you know in the Gospels. The story of the wheat and the tares, Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is trying to say, listen people. Some people fooled themselves into salvation. They think they're okay. They think they know me. And they really don't know me in any way whatsoever. Well, of course I know Christ. Look. Look. I I, I mean, I look good, just like Judas was the treasurer. I mean, I sound good, I talk about him. Yeah, just like Judas said, let's sell the money, sell the oil and give it to the poor. Well, I do good, yeah, just like Judas did. Now, the purpose of this message is not to make you sit here and squirm and make you question your salvation. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we have to honestly stop and say, what does our relationship with Jesus Christ truly, truly look like? What does it really look like? Do you really know him? And what that means, to know him to the point of salvation. I've shared with you this before, when I first got saved, I'd go around and talk to people about the Lord, and I would always ask this question, do you believe in God? And everybody said yes. I was the world's greatest evangelist. Everybody believed in God. The longer I walked with the Lord, the more I started to realize, guess what? There's no atheist in hell. They all believe in God. Satan believes in God. The demons believe in God. So then I started asking, are you saved? Started to get some people that didn't know, but still most people, are you saved? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think I am saved. Yeah, I'm saved. And then it's kind of interesting that in the years I've been with the Lord, I've started changing how I ask people, where they stand with Christ? Because do you believe in God? Well, sure. Do you you believe in Jesus? Well, yeah, sure. Do you think you're saved? Uh, Yeah, sure. I sure hope I am. Well, what about do you know him? What do you mean? Do you know him? Well, yeah, I know about Jesus. Yeah, no, 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 no. Do you know him? Do you know what it means to really know who he is? And this is where the beauty of the Greek language is so much more full than our English language. Because think of anybody famous that you want to think of. Do you know him? Well, yeah, I know him. I mean, I don't know him personally, but I know him. Think how silly that sounds. I mean, I know him, but I don't know him. Well, I mean, I know Jesus, but I don't know him. This is what we need to talk about now. Can you go with me now to Isaiah, please? Isaiah 1. Because if we would just stop and say, what constitutes a Christian? Well, they they would say the right things, just like Judas. They would do the right things, like Judas. They would look right. I mean, you'd be able to see them and see that they care about the Lord, just like Judas. They would want to be near Jesus, just like Judas. So what happens when we look at the church in America Well, obviously that person must be really on fire for the Lord. Why? Because, I mean, they sound good. They look good. They do good. And they want to be near Jesus. Look here at Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. If you're looking for a book to really dig into for the new year, Isaiah, 66 chapters. A deep book. An amazing book. I just want to encourage you. A quick little side note about going in deeper with the Lord. I'm always a fan of this. I love it when the first falls on a Sunday. And I love it when the first falls on January 1st. Because you guys are all thinking about New Year's resolutions, etc. What a great day to start. And I just encourage you, maybe it's the book of Proverbs. You know I'm a fan of that. 31 chapters, 31 days in the month of January. Today you read Proverbs 1, tomorrow Proverbs 2. Wonderful time just to get into the Lord. But if you're looking for something a little bit deeper here, let me encourage you with Isaiah. It's a tough book. And you've got to remember Isaiah here is speaking to the nation of Israel. And they're in a pretty good spot now, later on in the book of Isaiah, it kind of gets a little rough. The problem is, the nation of Israel is just like Judas. They look good, they sound good, they're doing good, but they're not near the Lord. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What a way to start out a message. To call them Sodom and to call them Gomorrah. Be like me coming in saying, good morning, you heathen Jezebels. Great to have you here. He is setting the tone right from the beginning. You are Sodom and Gomorrah. You are the nation that was so evil that God had to destroy. Verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Now I want to stop right there. For years I've struggled with why. Why do we do what we do? I mean everything we do. why, Why is it we do what we do? And I've never been able to articulate that biblically, what that looks like. And I heard a message recently on Isaiah 1, and I read this verse, and I said, that's what it is. This is what God is asking Israel right now, verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of sacrifices to me? He is saying, why are you doing this, Israel? Have you ever thought about that? Why do you do what you do spiritually? Why are you here this morning? Why did you get up, hopefully read the Bible this morning? Why do you pray before a meal? Why? Now, this is not to try to deter you to not do devotions, to not pray before your meals, and not come to church. I'm really asking you, why do you do it? This is what God wants to know. What's your reason? Look at the rest of verse 11. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I did not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. God says, listen, do you guys really think I want more dead animals? I don't need more dead animals. I don't need more blood. I don't need any of that. I have enough of that. I'm asking you, Israel, why are you doing it? Same thing today. Why do you do what you do? Some of you are here this morning because this is just what you do. Sunday morning, we get up, we go. Some of you are here this morning, Lord, I earnestly desire to grow. I want to go deeper. Some of you are here this morning because your mom made you. I ran into that this morning. My mom didn't make me. I don't want to make it sound that way. Dawn, had to, Dawn fills in, does, teaches the first uh, Sunday school at the 830 service on the first Sunday of the month. And so, now, in my house, there's only a couple morning people. And I'm one of them, and Dawn is not. the rest. So I'm getting ready to leave to come out to church here at the 8.30 service. And one of my boys just has tears coming down his cheeks. And I said, what's wrong? And Dawn goes, he wants to know why he has to go to church this morning. So that's Jesus at the Irvin house. My kids are in tears because they have to go to church. I just want to throw that out there, there. Why do we do what we do? Because you've heard me make this point before. You, You don't have to read the Bible. You don't have to do devotions. You don't have to come to church. You don't even have to share Christ. You don't have to do any of those things. Those are not a force to. So if you're doing them, why are you doing it? Next one, verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? So why do you do it, verse 11? Verse 12, who's making you do it? Who's forcing you to do this? When you, when you choose to get up in the morning and maybe read the Bible, why are you doing it and who's making you do it? And you came to church this morning, well, who's making you do it? Why are you doing it? God's saying to Israel, I want to know your hurt. Why are you doing this? Verse 13, bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. God's saying, guys, I'm tired of it. I'm done. He uses a strong word here. I hate it. Because I hate your animal sacrifices. I hate your incense. I hate your assemblies. I hate everything about it. Why are you doing it? What's your purpose? Think about that for a second. So you're here at church this morning. Why? Is God happy you're here? I don't know. I don't know your heart. You spent some time in the Word this morning. Is God happy? I don't know. You have to stop and say, because what the Lord wants is He wants your heart. If He wanted outward obedience, Judas would be who we'd be talking about right now. That we need more Judases. No. If it was outward obedience that He wanted, we'd be looking at Isaiah 1, and it'd be totally different, and God would say, oh, please kill more animals for me. Please get together more often for me. Hey, more incense. Just keep doing more incense. God says, I don't want any of this. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wow. You have to stop and ask, why and what is the purpose? Because it really does mean this. Think about this. That time in the word may be pointless. Well, James, God's word doesn't return void. Oh, I agree. But your reasoning for doing it may be pointless to the Lord. Your church attendance may be pointless. Your service may be pointless. Everything we do may be pointless. Because if our heart is not where it's supposed to be. Now some of you may stop and say, okay, but James, God can use good in that. Yes, I agree. But I'm saying between you and the Lord personally, you and the Lord personally, God says, I care more about your motives. I care more about what you're doing and why you're doing it. So what is his answer? Verse 16, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes cease to do evil learn to do good seek justice rebuke the oppressor defend the fatherless plead for the widow now before you think this is some type of works based salvation this is not what he's saying hence he says in verse 16 wash yourselves make yourself clean he goes get yourself right with me when you get yourself right with me and I have your heart all of a sudden doing good defending the fatherless pleading the widow it's from the right motives the right motives verse 18 come now Let us reason together, says the Lord. God says, let's sit down and talk about this. I do this a lot with the kids. i got to talk to them. I need their attention. We need to sit down. I need to get your eyes. Look at me. Don't look at the TV. Shut it off. i got one little guy in my house that if you try to talk to him, he just is all over the place. And so I start saying, give me your hands. Hold my hand and let's look at each other. You can't hit your brother with a crowbar. You just can't. Okay? So I see in verse 18. Come now and let us reason together. It's almost like God says, James, sit beside me on the spiritual couch of life. He puts his arm around me. He says, James, I see what you're doing, man. Maybe he doesn't say, man. I see what you're doing. You're in the Word, you're serving, you're ministering, you're praying. But why? Why are you doing it? What is your motive? Who's making you do this? Because look, verse 18. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So often we quote verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And we quote that verse. And it's a wonderful verse. You know, a few weeks ago when we had that snow that hit. And we were driving someplace and the boys and I were going there. And there was this area that no one had driven yet. No one had walked in. And it's just blanketed white. Oh, it was beautiful. And I see what the Lord was saying. But to really understand this verse that we quote, get the context. The context is what? Israel, you got a fake false relationship with me. Yep, you're doing good. You're looking good. You're sounding good. A lot of animals are dying. A lot of incense is being burnt. There's a lot of assemblies and get-togethers. But I don't have your heart. Same thing with Judas. Boy, Judas, you're doing great. Great job as the treasurer. Great job thinking of the poor, Judas. Judas, good job on those missions trips. He was so good that the other apostles would not even think that Judas could betray Jesus. But he wasn't right with the Lord. So what we need to do here this morning is we need to stop and say, Okay, why do I do what I do? What drives me to do it? If your walk with, Lord, with the Lord is just some type of legalistic, this is what I do, you're right in Isaiah chapter 1. Well, why do I do devotions? I don't know. I mean, that's just what we're supposed to do, right? Well, yeah, but why? Why are you here this morning? I don't know. I mean, that's what we do. We just get up. We go to church. See, the thing the Lord keeps laying on my heart over these last couple of years is exactly Verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Now, that word sacrifices literally means animal sacrifices. But I read verse 11. The sacrifices I make, Lord, why do I do it? Is it to impress you guys as a pastor? Is it to make myself look good to my wife and my kids? Is it to build me up personally so that way I feel good about myself because I help people? Or is it because I want to look into Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith? See, the Lord's really been laying on my heart lately is what are you going to be, James? God-pleaser or man-pleaser? And to really be crazy for Christ, you can't be a man-pleaser. You can't. It has to be Christ first in what you say and what you do. And what the Lord's really been laying on my heart is the why. Why do I do what I do? What drives me to do it? And I hope it's for the glory of Jesus Christ and so for people to know him and to make him known to those aren't. And I just want to see James disappear And I pray the same for you guys, is that who you are stays, because the Lord loves you. But your motives would just disappear to truly become all Christ all the time. And I want to ask you, this is what I want to leave you with here. Why do you do what you do spiritually? What drives you to do it? These are the questions that Isaiah is asking in Isaiah chapter 1. And it's good things to ask. Because a lot of you are going to go home today, and you're probably going to go eat lunch. And I would say the vast majority of you are going to probably have a time of prayer before you eat. Why? Why? Dawn called the boys out on this a couple weeks ago. Because when they pray over the meal, I, I don't know how else to describe it. It's like fork in one hand, piece of food on the fork. Lord, we thank you for this food. And just like, you know, it's like this one motion. Okay, guys, why are we doing this? Or like devotions. Why do we stop what we're doing? Church, why do we come? Because I want to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and all that I say and do, because I can look good, sound good, do good, and be near Jesus, just like Judas. and that means nothing because I don't know him. I want to know Christ, I want to know him thoroughly. I want to know him to bring to the knowledge of who He is, and then I want to tell everybody else about that. So what we're going to do here is we're going to close with prayer, but I want you to guys to really stop and think. Why do I do what I do? What drives me? What motivates me? If you want to go deeper, you can come on up, worship team. If you want to go deeper, what a great week to start. Great day to start saying, Lord, I'm in the word just to be, know you. You know, there's two new studies starting up. The one new one on Friday, with the gals, new one on Sunday, excuse me, on Saturday with uh, Rich at 9 out here, Book of Daniel. And maybe you want to go something more. I want to tell you this. Dawn and I are, are praying about uh, starting up a discipleship class. At our house, we've been talking about that for the last couple weeks out here. If you're interested in getting involved with that, come see me. We can talk about days and times. And if you want to just get together one-on-one, guys, I'd be more than willing to meet you one-on-one and go through stuff with you. Ladies, if you want to get together, we've got some wonderful women out here. That would be a real blessing to you. If you want to go deeper, we want to help you do it.